Section 33 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Self-Help, with illustrations of conduct and perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 12. Example. Models. Part 2. One of the most valuable and one of the most infectious examples which can be set for the young is that of cheerful working. Cheerfulness gives elasticity to the spirit. Spectres fly before it, difficulties cause no despair, for they are encountered with hope, and the mind acquires that happy disposition to improve opportunities which rarely fails of success. The fervent spirit is always a healthy and happy spirit working cheerfully itself and stimulating others to work. It confers a dignity on even the most ordinary occupations. The most effective work also is usually the full-hearted work, that which passes through the hands or the head of him whose heart is glad. Hume was accustomed to say that he would rather possess a cheerful disposition, inclined always to look on the bright side of things, than with a gloomy mind to be the master of an estate of ten thousand a year. Granville Sharp, amidst his indefatigable labors on behalf of the slave, solaced himself in the evenings by taking part in glees and instrumental concerts at his brother's house, singing or playing on the flute, the clarinet, or the oboe. And at the Sunday evening oratorios, when Handel was played, he beat the kettle-drums. He also indulged, though sparingly, in caricature-drawing. Fall Buxton, also, was an eminently cheerful man, taking special pleasure in field sports, in riding about the country with his children, and in mixing in all their domestic amusements. In another sphere of action, Dr. Arnold was a noble and a cheerful worker, throwing himself into the great business of his life, the training and teaching of young men, with his whole heart and soul. It is stated in his admiral biography that, quote, the most remarkable thing in the Laleham Circle was the wonderful healthiness of tone which prevailed there. It was a place where a newcomer at once felt that a great and earnest work was going forward. Every pupil was made to feel that there was a work for him to do, that his happiness, as well as his duty, lay in doing that work well. Hence an indescribable zest was communicated to a young man's feeling about life. A strange joy came over him, on discerning that he had the means of being useful, and thus being happy, and a deep respect and ardent attachment sprang up towards him who had taught him thus, to value life and his own self, and his work and mission in the world. All this was founded on the breadth and comprehensiveness of Arnold's character, as well as its striking truth and reality. On the unfeigned regard he had for work of all kinds, and the sense he had of its value, both for the complex aggregate of society and the growth and protection of the individual. In all this there was no excitement, no predilection for one class of work above another, no enthusiasm for any one-sided object, but a humble, profound, and most religious consciousness that work is the appointed calling of man on earth, the end for which his various faculties were given, the element in which his nature is ordained to develop itself, and in which his progressive advance towards heaven is to lie. End quote. Among the many valuable men trained for public life and usefulness by Arnold was the gallant Hodson of Hodson's Horse, 
who, writing home from India many years after, thus spoke of his revered master, quote, The influence he produced has been most lasting and striking in its effects. It is felt even in India, and I cannot say more than that. End quote. The useful influence which a right-hearted man of energy and industry may exercise amongst his neighbors and dependents and accomplish for his country cannot perhaps be better illustrated than by the career of Sir John Sinclair, characterized by the Abbe Grégoire as, quote, the most indefatigable man in Europe, end quote. He was originally a country laird, born to a considerable estate situated near John O'Groat's house, almost beyond the beat of civilization, in a bare wild country fronting the stormy North Sea. His father dying while he was a youth of sixteen, the management of the family property thus early devolved upon him, and at eighteen he began a course of vigorous improvement in the county of Caithness, which eventually spread all over Scotland. Agriculture was then in a most backward state. The fields were unenclosed, the lands undrained. The small farmers of Caithness were so poor that they could scarcely afford to keep a horse or sheltie. The hard work was chiefly done, and the burdens borne, by the women. And if a courtier lost a horse, it was not unusual for him to marry a wife as the cheapest substitute. The country was without roads or bridges, and drovers driving their cattle south had to swim the rivers along with their beasts. The chief track leading to Caithness lay along a high shelf on a mountainside, the road being some hundred feet of clear perpendicular height above the sea which dashed below. Sir John, though a mere youth, determined to make a new road over the hill of Ben Chilt. The old let-alone proprietors, however, regarding his scheme with incredulity and derision. But he himself laid out the road, assembled some twelve hundred workmen early one summer's morning, sent them simultaneously to work, superintending their labors, and stimulating them by his presence and example, and before night what had been a dangerous sheep-track, six miles in length, hardly passable for led horses, was made practicable for wheeled carriages as if by the power of magic. It was an admirable example of energy and well-directed labor which could not fail to have a most salutary influence upon the surrounding population. He then proceeded to make more roads, to erect mills, to build bridges, and to enclose and cultivate the waste land. He introduced improved methods of culture and regular rotation of crops, distributing small premiums to encourage industry, and he thus soon quickened the whole frame of society within reach of his influence, and infused an entirely new spirit into the cultivators of the soil. From being one of the most inaccessible districts of the North, the very ultima thule of civilization, Caithness became a pattern county for its roads, its agriculture, and its fisheries. In Sinclair's youth, the post was carried by a runner only once a week, and the young baronet then declared that he would never rest till a coach drove daily to Thurso. The people of the neighborhood could not believe in any such thing, and it became a proverb in the country to say of an utterly impossible scheme, Oh, aye, that will come to pass when Sir John sees the Daily Mail at Thursday. But Sir John lived to see his dream realized, and the Daily Mail established to Thurso. The circle of his benevolent operation gradually widened. Observing the serious deterioration which had taken place in the quality of British wool, one of the staple commodities of the country, 
he forthwith though but a private and little-known country gentleman devoted himself to its improvement by his personal exertions he established the british wool society for the purpose and himself led the way to practical improvement by importing eight hundred sheep from all countries at his own expense the result was the introduction into scotland of the celebrated chevoy breed sheep farmers scouted the idea of south country flocks being able to thrive in the far north but sir john persevered and in a few years there were not fewer than three hundred thousand chevoys diffused over the four northern counties alone the value of all grazing land was thus enormously increased and scottish estates which before were comparatively worthless began to yield large rentals returned by Cathness to parliament in which he remained for thirty years rarely missing a division his position gave him farther opportunities of usefulness which he did not neglect to employ mr pitt observing his persevering energy in all useful public projects sent for him to downing street and voluntarily proposed his assistance in any object he might have in view another man might have thought of himself and his own promotion but sir john characteristically replied that he desired no favor for himself but intimated that the reward most gratifying to his feelings would be mr pitt's assistance in the establishment of a national board of agriculture arthur young laid a bet with the baronet that his scheme would never be established adding quote, your board of agriculture will be in the moon but vigorously setting to work he roused public attention to the subject enlisted a majority of parliament on his side and eventually established the board of which he was appointed president the result of its action need not be described but the stimulus which it gave to agriculture and stock-raising was shortly felt throughout the whole united kingdom and tens of thousands of acres were redeemed from barrenness by its operation he was equally indefatigable in encouraging the establishment of fisheries and the successful founding of these great branches of british industry at thurso and wick was mainly due to his exertions he urged for long years and at length succeeded in obtaining the enclosure of a harbour for the latter place which is perhaps the greatest and most prosperous fishing town in the world sir john threw his personal energy into every work in which he engaged rousing the inert stimulating the idle encouraging the hopeful and working with all when a french invasion was threatened he offered to mr pitt to raise a regiment on his own estate and he was as good as his word he went down to the north and raised a battalion of six hundred men afterwards increased to one thousand and it was admitted to be one of the finest volunteer regiments ever raised inspired throughout by his own noble and patriotic spirit while commanding officer at the camp of aberdeen he held the offices of a director of the bank of scotland chairman of the british wool society provost of wick director of the british fisheries society commissioner for issuing exchequer bills member of parliament for Cathness, and president of the board of agriculture amidst all his nefarious and self-imposed work he even found time to write books enough of themselves to establish a reputation when mr rush the american ambassador arrived in england he relates that he inquired of mr coke of holcomb what was the best work on agriculture and was referred to sir john sinclair's 
and when he further asked mr vanstetart chancellor of the exchequer what was the best work on british finance he was again referred to a work by sir john sinclair his history of the public revenue but the great monument of his indefatigable industry a work that would have appalled other men but only served to rouse and sustain his energy was his statistical account of scotland in twenty-one volumes one of the most valuable practical works ever published in any age or country amid a host of other pursuits that occupied him nearly eight years of hard labor during which he received and attended to upwards of twenty thousand letters on the subject it was a thoroughly patriotic undertaking from which she derived no personal advantage whatever beyond the honor of having completed it the whole of the profits were signed by him to the society for the sons of the clergy in scotland the publication of the book led to great public improvements it was followed by the immediate abolition of several oppressive feudal rights to which it called attention the salaries of schoolmasters and clergymen in many parishes were increased and an increased stimulus was given to agriculture throughout scotland sir john then publicly offered to undertake the much greater labor of collecting and publishing a similar statistical account of england but unhappily the then archbishop of canterbury refused to sanction it lest it should interfere with the tithes of the clergy and the idea was abandoned a remarkable illustration of his energetic promptitude was the manner in which he once provided on a great emergency for the relief of the manufacturing districts in seventeen ninety three the stagnation produced by the war led to an unusual number of bankruptcies and many of the first houses in manchester and glasgow were tottering not so much from the want of property but because the usual sources of trade and credit were for the time closed up a period of intense distress amongst the labouring classes seemed intimate and when sir john urged in parliament that exchequer notes to the amount of five millions should be issued immediately as a loan to such merchants as could give security this suggestion was adopted and his offer to carry out his plan in conjunction with certain members named by him was also accepted the vote was passed late at night and early next morning sir john anticipating the delays of officialism and red tape proceeded to bankers in the city and borrowed of them on his own personal security the sum of seventy thousand pounds which he dispatched the same evening to those merchants who were in the most urgent need of assistance pitt meeting sir john in the house expressed his great regret that the pressing wants of manchester and glasgow could not be supplied so soon as was desirable adding the money cannot be raised for some days it is already gone it left london by tonight's mail was sir john's triumphant reply and in afterwards relating the anecdote he added with a smile of pressure pitt was as mistartled as if i had stabbed him to the last this great good man worked on usefully and cheerfully setting a great example for his family and for his country and so laboriously seeking others good it might be said that he found his own not wealth for his generosity seriously impaired his private fortune but happiness and self-satisfaction and the peace that passes knowledge a great patriot with magnificent powers of work he nobly did his duty to his country yet he was not neglectful to his old household and home 
his sons and daughters grew up to honour and usefulness and it was one of the proudest things sir john could say when verging on his eightieth year that he had lived to see seven sons grown up not one of whom had incurred a debt he could not pay or caused him a sorrow that could have been avoided End of chapter twelve part two